The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Arons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of self-compassion. According to one of our guests, compassion is something that's easy for a lot of us to conceptualize and practice when it comes to other people. Not so much for ourselves, especially for those of us prone to ruminating, stewing, being self-critical, being anxious. In a moment, we'll talk to Dr. Kristen Neff, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin and an expert on self-compassion. But first, we'll hear from Mark Goldstein, someone who, up until recently, lacked any little bit of that self-compassion. He started his career where, unfortunately, a lot of us do. I felt a sense of pressure, not necessarily that you know my family imposed upon me, but just growing up in Westchester County in New York, there, there were just certain expectations that you're going to be an accountant, a doctor, a lawyer. You know, you're not going to branch off in, in, into something outside of one of those those or, or related profession. My father and my brother are both doctors. I hate blood. That wasn't on the table. I I did not want to go into accounting, so it kind of just left being a lawyer. You know, thankfully I, I learned you know quickly that I love doing it. Um, but but it was really out of a sense of I need to choose a profession that my community would approve of. Today, Mark is a lawyer at the firm Reed Smith, where he focuses on labor and employment. And there are a lot of parts of his job that he loves. But he also didn't realize until recently that he struggles with depression and obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Things you maybe don't usually equate with a high-powered law gig. And as someone who spent his life trying to achieve, and who measured success in billable hours, it wasn't so easy to think about taking time off for mental health. Mark wrote a blog about his experience, and so I wanted to talk to him about his journey. Did you always feel, looking back, I mean, do you think you always had some depression and and other things in your profile, or did it really come on all of a sudden? So in looking back, I think what was most prevalent over the course of my life was the obsessive compulsive disorder. And to be Mm. clear, I didn't recognize this until a few years ago. I remember it was a few weeks before my bar mitzvah, now dating myself 23 years, I think. But I was obsessively chanting my Haftorah for the weeks leading up to it. Like I couldn't fall asleep without doing it. I would just do it time and time again. And when I look back now, there are those obsessive tendencies that I didn't recognize them at the time for what they were, but but they, you know, they were they were manifestations of OCD. Um, depression and anxiety, um, which I've been diagnosed with as well. To a lesser extent, but definitely were prevalent. Um, but really, the OCD and looking back, it was amazing how much it had been a part of my life, but I hadn't even noticed it, um, or I had noticed it, but I hadn't realized that it was a you know a mental health condition and not just you know you know something else. I, well, I, I often say that you know what drives people 
uh, to be a lawyer, but, but many professions is, is, you know, a sense of perfectionism type A and being OCD is frankly good for that. <laughs> um, to a point though, yeah. to a very fine point that if you go over that point or that line, then it gets concerning. And so for me, it was, you know, good going through school. Uh, I did well, you know, in college and law school, and it helped me as a young lawyer. For me, and finally in 2017, I, I crossed that line of it helping me in terms of, you know, being, a, you know, a competent and, and a good lawyer. You know, it, it went to a dark place. I want to talk about that. But before we do, I think that there are, like being a lawyer, a lot of misconceptions around what being OCD is. I've said before on the show, we throw the term around, oh my God, you're so OCD, look at your kitchen. Like, what does it even mean? What does OCD mean for you? How does it show up? So it, it, it is, and I'll, I'll give you the example, uh, how it manifested itself for me back in 2017. It is obsessive tendencies that I cannot stop. I cannot break a cycle of as much as I would like to. And I know I'm doing engaging in an obsessive tendency that I don't want to be, but I still can't stop. So for me, it, it was Labor Day weekend of 2017. And for whatever reason, I convinced myself that I had committed some instance of malpractice while at my firm. Now, this wasn't the result of an accusation or anything that anybody had said, but, and, and I know a lot of lawyers, you know, sometimes feel this way, but I just felt like I must have committed malpractice. So with that, um, I decided that I needed to go through every email I'd ever received or sent every document I'd ever drafted during my, you know, then four and a half years at my firm looking for some instance of malpractice. And I, I would have literally over the next, spend the next six, seven weeks obsessively checking, you know, emails and documents on every single matter I have, had ever worked on. And, uh, you know, I'd wake up at three in the morning and tell my wife that I was going to get a glass of water downstairs. And instead, you know, I lied to her and I would go upstairs to uh, my office on the third floor and spent three hours checking the emails, looking again for some instance of malpractice, or I would hear a song and, and a lyric in the song would remind me of a particular case that I had worked on. And I would have to go to my emails. And it wasn't just while I was in the office or, or at home, it was anywhere. I mean, I, I can recall that Labor Day weekend or that Saturday, we were at dinner down at the Jersey Shore and I went to the bathroom and spent 20 minutes checking, checking emails. I could not stop checking my emails, could not stop checking documents, and I, I would lie to people about it. And I knew that it needed to stop, but I could not control myself. Whew. It strikes me that, I mean, this was spurred by a very deep-seated anxiety. I mean, committing malpractice, I assume, would mean the end of your career and a lot of other scary stuff. Like, did anything set off that fear? Or why do you think, why do you think it's centered around that? You know, I think it was the culmination of a whole host of things. In part, I hadn't taken a vacation in five years, which is my own doing. Nobody was stopping me from taking a vacation by any means. I just never took one. You know, it was it was a period where probably the depression and the anxiety um, combined with just being burnt out from not having taken time off all just exploded over this one weekend. I, I felt like two people, like one who was living the situation and one outside my body who was watching the situation. And I wanted to tell myself it's going to be okay. The, the person watching wanted to tell the person living it, it's going to be okay. 
but I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. The, the person living, it couldn't stop. It couldn't stop the obsession. Couldn't, you know, stop being depressed. Couldn't stop the panic attacks. You know, I, it was, it was crippled. It, 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 you know, it crippled my, my personal life and my professional life. Uh, when I was at work, we have a wellness room on our floor. I would spend most of my days laying on the couch in there, just trying to breathe. Um, when I was at home, I was largely in bed. I was a, you know, terrible father or, or maybe not terrible, but absentee father and husband, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for the period of, you know, late August to let's say mid October of 2017, I, I, I felt like I just couldn't do anything. Uh, again, I, you know, I stopped listening to music. I stopped watching movies or TV shows because again, they, they would have some trigger. Anything that had previously brought joy to my life. I just, I wasn't able to enjoy it. I wasn't able to engage it. Were, were you able to get up and go to work most days, but even if you weren't able to do work? Probably looking back, I would say probably 60% of the days, I, I was maybe 70% I was able to go in, but I was a shell of myself there. Um, and most days, either you know, I, I take the train into work, most days I had a panic attack, either one or both of the ways, you know, to and from the city. It was clear to me that either I was having a heart attack or I was having a panic attack. You know, the frequency, uh, you know, after a couple of them, I realized it wasn't a heart attack. It was a panic attack. It didn't make it any better. Um, and it was, it's scary. Oh, God. Well, so, so what happened? So you're in this period, you're in, it's fall of 2017. So, it, you know, it was in this period, I, you know, with the support of my wife and my firm, I, I started seeing a psychiatrist and I was diagnosed quite quickly with OCD. Did you ask for help or I'm, I'm just curious, just, just cause it's probably helpful yeah, with the audience. So, like ha, ha, what happened? So it was a combination. I had been seeing a therapist probably since the beginning of, of 17. And I remember that Tuesday morning after uh, Labor Day weekend, I went into him right away. We had a, a session and, you know, he said, you know, you need to tell, you know, tell them that something's going on. So I went to the HR department and our firm and they were amazing. And, and you know, they said, Whatever you need, we have employee assistance programs. It was through my therapist that I got, I found a psychiatrist um, who was able to then diagnose me, uh, you know, within a few days with OCD, severe depression and anxiety. Um, and really over the course of what I would say is the next six weeks, I, I you know, for lack of a better word, I, I, you know, I would say I was a zombie, uh, you know, as I say, because I think it's important to note, I never had suicidal ideations um, and Obviously, so sadly, many people do in those circumstances, but I did not think I would live till 2018. And, you know, it, it was just, I went through my days in a, in a haze, in a fog, and it got to the point where by early October, I realized, you know, I was losing both my professional life and my personal life. On the professional side of things, my goal, as I think it is for many attorneys, was to make partner at my law firm. And I realized that nobody was going to promote me to partner in the circumstance I was in. I mean, I, I wasn't doing anything, you know, I wasn't able to function. And then equally, if probably more importantly, uh, my personal life was falling apart, right? I was not a good husband. I was not a good father. I realized that, look, if I don't do something about this, I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to lose everything that's important in my life. And after many conversations with my wife, and, you know, mental health professionals, I went into the HR department of my firm and I said, look, 
I need to change something. Um, so I told him you know, I wanted to take a leave of absence. Uh, I said, you know, look, I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know if I'll be back, but I need, I need something to change. And so, um, on October 17th of 2017, uh, was the first day of my leave of absence. And I really honestly had no idea what I was going to do. I, I did not think that I'd ever practice law again, to be honest with you. And what I ended up doing over, you know, the next about three months was I, you know, I met, I continued meeting with a psychologist, a psychiatrist. I added mm-hmm. um, a cognitive behavioral therapist to the repertoire, mm-hmm. which was uh, really important because she gave me things like, she gave me homework, things mm-hmm. like, you know, my first week, uh, as I said, I couldn't watch a TV show or movies because it would trigger something. I had to sit down and watch 30 minutes straight each day of any TV show or any movie. And as silly as that sounds now, back in October of 17, that was as painful as anything to me. Um, and then I also started, I engaged a, a mindfulness coach, taught me mindfulness and meditation. And I will tell you that I was the type of person who scoffed at that type of stuff before then. I mean, we'd had mindfulness training at our firm a few years earlier and after about five minutes, I got up and left and a partner said to me, can't you try to fit even five minutes of this stuff into your day? And I said, no, I don't have time. And I, you know, my wife said, look, what do you have to lose? <laughs> Literally have nothing to lose. And boy, was it, you know, as impactful as anything else. I mean, uh, you know, it was as impactful as the medication I started taking, which, you know, I still take to this day. The, with the mindfulness, the meditation really helped change kind of the way I look at the world. And the example I tend to give in that regard, um, you know, is before uh, before I, you know, I, I started with all of this. You know, anybody who's familiar with the New York City subway system at rush hour, you know, you're, it, it's uh, particularly, I, you know, I get the train at Penn Station. You're, you're fighting with your elbows to get on, and, and you want to be the, you want to get on that train. And not that I'm a perfect person, because I'm far from it. But now what I try to do is look if somebody else needs to get on that train ahead of me. They need to push their elbows. You know what? Let them get on ahead. I'll take the next one. By early December, I started feeling better. I started kind of feeling like myself again. Um, and I started having the itch to practice law. And, um, you know, so I, I ended up coming back to the firm in early January of 18, 11 weeks of the day after I had left. Um, and I was equally as scared, if not more scared, when I went out because, you know, and, and I, I talked to a lot of people about you know, mental health related issues. I think one of the biggest concerns people have is retribution slash perception. Like if I tell people that I'm taking time off or, or anything related to a mental health issue, how will I be received? How will I be viewed by them? And for me, you know, I was just, I was welcomed back with open arms. Um, and it was only a limited group of folks who knew why I'd been out, but even, but those folks treated me like, you know, like I taken time off for, for a personal reason. And it didn't have any, you know, relationship to my work and they treated me, uh, just the same. And it was, you know, it was incredible. Were you angry at yourself ever listening to your profile of such a hard driving, achieving person? I would imagine that leaving work must've been a really big deal for you. Walking out of that, right. Like walking out of that firm Mm -hmm. and thinking, as you said, I'm never going to practice law, certainly here again, like, how did you feel about yourself? I thought I was weak. I thought that, you know, I think our, our uh, firm has about 1,800 attorneys. I thought I was, you know, all the other 1,799 were able to deal with, with, with the stress of our jobs and our lives. Why am I the only weak one who's not able to? 
And, you know, and it took time for me to realize that a few things, one, that that perception was wrong. There was nothing weak about me. And secondly, um, that so many of those 1,799 are or have been in circumstances similar to myself. And that, you know, you look at somebody and, and you cannot tell by, generally speaking, by outward appearances, you know, what's going on in their mind. You know, so I feel alone in the fall of 2017. And in the years since, it's, it's been incredible for me to see how many people can relate to the issues that I was going through, either personally or with respect to a loved one or a friend. Um, you know, there, there was nothing weak about it, but, but that's how I felt at the time. That's how I perceived myself. Like, why can't I be, you know, why can't I be strong like every other person at my firm or every other lawyer, frankly? And how did you come around to sort of I guess, have more compassion for yourself and say, I wasn't weak, I needed help, and that was okay. There were a few things. I mean, a lot of conversations with my wife, uh, with my parents, with my brother, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, my family in general. And then really, there were, there were a couple of things. One was uh, our firm has a disability inclusion group, the acronym for which is LEADERS. And I joined that in the summer of 2018, a few months after I was back. And I met all these people, both attorneys and, and, and non-attorneys at our firm who, you know, had been through similar circumstances. And I was, I was shocked. I was absolutely blown away by this. It, it was amazing to me to see it. It was people who, you know, I walked down the hall and you have no idea that, you know, the, the, the circumstances they'd had in their life or, or a family member or a friend had gone through, um, you know, people who, you know, great books of business, well-respected. Um, and they could relate to what I, I had felt, but I had no idea um, until that point. And, you know, that that really changed things for me. It made me feel like, look, n- none of us is alone in this, whether you're a lawyer or not. Anybody who has mental health, uh, suffers from a mental health disability and, you know, it's a tangential issue. It took me a long time to accept the fact that a mental health condition is a disability akin to a physical disability. You know, it, it took me a, um, you know, a long time to realize that, hey, there are so many people who can relate to this, but very few of us are standing up and saying, hey, I'm suffering or I've suffered. You're not alone. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. The idea of self-compassion was very important to lawyer Mark Goldstein. It's also something I really believe in and struggle with. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this idea and speak to Dr. Kristen Neff. In addition to her role as an associate professor at UT, she's also the author of the books Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and Fierce Self-Compassion. Here's my conversation with Dr. Neff. So, Dr. Kristen Neff, you are famous for your work on self-compassion. I'm curious, why do you study self-compassion? What got you interested in it? And why do we all need to have it as a tool in our toolbox? Well, the reason I got interested in self-compassion is um, it was actually my last year of graduate school, and I was I was just a mess. I was stressed about finishing. I'd just gotten out of a divorce, and I'd actually heard that mindfulness meditation was good for stress. And so I went to a group that taught in the tradition of a teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a, he's a meditation teacher, but he talks a lot about self-compassion. And I started being compassionate to myself, even well before I even learned how to meditate, which is kind of more complex. I just started to be kind to myself. Like the teacher said, you know, just turn compassion inward. So I said, hey, Kristen, I, you know, so sorry you're stressed. You know, you aren't the only one who's stressed. I'm here for you. I tried to feel like warmth and care. And I was just blown away by the immediate difference it made in my ability to cope with all the stress I was going through. And so when I got a, a you know, job, I did get a job after I got a professorship, I decided I wanted to um, research it. And the reason you know, I've really devoted my life to this topic is because it makes such a huge difference in people's ability to cope with difficulty, right? So compassion, calm is with, compassion means to suffer. So it's basically how we are with our suffering, how we relate to our suffering. Are we hard? Are we judgmental? Are we cold? Do we feel isolated? Or are we warm, supportive? Do we remember that, hey, this is part of life. This is a journey that we all have to take. And making that switch, and what we know from the research, as well as Primarily the reason I care is because I know from my personal practice, it just makes mm. such a big difference in our ability to cope with the, with the difficulties of life. And do sometimes we have to fake caring for ourselves, even if we really don't feel we care for <laughs> well, ourselves? Well, in some ways, fake it till you make it. I mean, right, so it may be hard at first, right, if that's been your, if your pattern your whole life is to be mean and self-critical. It, it, it does feel a little inauthentic at first. You want to make sure you aren't, like, using positive affirmations. Positive affirmations is like, every day and every way I'm getting stronger and stronger. Well, maybe you aren't. It's more like, mm -hmm. more like, it's more like the compassionate mess. I'm so sorry you're such a mess. Is there anything I can do to help? Right. <laughs> so you want to be authentic about it. You don't want to deny the issues you're having, but it's really allowing yourself to kind of be moved by your own suffering the way you might be moved by the suffering of a friend to really feel that caring, that desire to help. Really, compassion is a motivation, a motivation to help in some way. Um, and feeling connected, it, it, this isn't like self-pity. It's not like, oh, poor, mm -hmm. woe is me. 
It's just saying, hey, the human experience is one of imperfection. We all struggle. No one's perfect. There's nothing wrong with me for feeling this way. This is like, this is a part of what it means to be human. I'm not alone. Uh, and then mindfulness is a really important part of self-compassion because if we ignore our pain or conversely, if we get lost in it, if we like, if we uh, ruminate on it or we get stuck in it, then we actually can't help ourselves. So we need some balanced distance. We need to be aware of our pain, but in a way that has some perspective and space around it. And then when we do that, we can be most helpful to ourselves. That's great. Why are we as humans so self-critical? Some of us. What? Wh- why did yeah. evolution make us self-critical? Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, I think there are both physiological and cultural reasons. So in terms of why evolution made us this way, you know, you probably know this, that, that we evolved to have anxious, negative brains, right, that, that are very threat focused um, so that we could survive, you know, uh, predators trying to run after us. Um, now, we also, we didn't just evolve to be threat focused. We also evolved to be careful focused toward others. So basically, there's, there's two main nervous system, um, systems in our body, right? So one is the fight, flight, or freeze response, right? Which happens when we feel threatened. And of course, what happens with self-criticism is when we fail or make a mistake or things are really difficult, we feel threatened. So we go into fight, fight, or flee, uh, freeze response, sorry, fight, flight, or freeze response. And so we fight ourselves because we're the problem, right? Thinking that somehow we could control our behavior um, or we flee into shame, kind of like, you know, hanging our heads to, to, to avoid the perceived judgments of others. Or we freeze and get stuck in rumination, you know, just like it's maybe if I think about it for the 20th time, it'll go away. Mm. Now, when, you're, when your child, or your best friend is threatened, you don't go in necessarily into fight, flight, or freeze mode because you aren't personally threatened. You're, so you're more able to draw into the second system, which is the tend and befriend response or the caregiving system, which primarily evolved to take care of others, right? So parents who are better caretakers, the children are more likely to survive. So that, so that's the physiological reason. Actually, what we're doing with self-compassion is we're, we're doing it. You might say an evolutionary hack. <laughs> we're <laughs> hacking into the system that was designed to care for others and using it for ourselves. Mm. So, so that's the evolutionary reason, but there's also so many um, cultural reasons for, you know, we're, we're raised to be compassionate to others. We think it's a good thing, but we think being self-compassionate means you'll be lazy, you'll be selfish, you'll lose your motivation, you'll be weak. And so we really have to combat a lot. It's really a radical act to be mm. self-compassionate because our culture doesn't, uh, what's the word I want? Our culture doesn't, shoot, why must not inspire, move you know what I'm saying? What's the word I'm looking for? Our culture. Oh, doesn't our culture reward. doesn't encourage that. No, it doesn't <laughs> reward culture it. culture doesn't encourage that way of uh, being with ourselves. And our brain doesn't either. So there you go. So we're, so the, the decks are stacked against the us. The decks, yeah. But, but the good news is, the really good news is, and this is kind of what surprised me in my work, is that it's easier than you might think to be self-compassionate because we already have such a good model in terms of being compassionate to others. Most of us have been encouraged by our culture. And again, we've got these evolved systems to where we know how to be kind and listen and to be patient and to be you know, encouraging, warm, empathetic. And so all we really need to do is, uh, first of all, remember, and then next, give ourselves permission to use this warm, caring system with ourselves. 
You've written that the internal working model of self is essentially who we believe we are, worthy of love and respect or acceptable just as we are. And those of us who are insecurely attached, and you said, yes, I count myself among them, (laughs) have been shown in research not just to be less confident, but more self-critical. So is that a process that you had to go through, that you had to teach yourself self-compassion because of both maybe who you are and how you were raised? Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, I... In that paragraph, I didn't talk about the nuances, but I would say I was securely attached with my mother and insecurely attached with my father, right? So Mm -hmm. it often happens. So my insecurity would happen more in the realm of men, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not so much like in the realm of friends. And I think that that often is the case. So, um, I mean, yeah, so my, my mother, I mean, I really have to give her credit. She, in many ways, she, she made me feel secure. She met my needs. And I think in many ways, that's why I'm so successful. But my love life hasn't been so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, so, and when, it, since I've written that book, I, I got also a divorce from Rupert, who was, who, if you're reading my first book, he was my husband. And that, that kind of all went to hell in a handbasket as well. So, yeah, it's something I've had to really uh, work toward. I mean, that feeling of being rejected, which started very, very young, uh, it's still there. It gets triggered fairly easily. But what I, what I know now, even though the feeling still comes up, right, what I know now is when that feeling comes up, I just really need to turn to self-compassion. I really need to turn toward myself and make sure that my feelings of, of love, of connection, of worthiness are not dependent on any external source, but are really found within. And it makes a huge difference. Could you talk us through maybe an internal exercise that you might do when you're in a situation and you feel the heat rising and you want to consider whether to turn on the fierce self-compassion or the mama, (laughs) mama kind yeah, well, you might say the, the, the fierceness is already arising, right? Because we don't mm. really control that. So anger is it just, again, it's just a very natural response, a self-protective response. So I have actually, in, in my new book, I developed some exercises to try to help people deal with difficult feelings like anger. Um, the first thing, the first thing is not to judge it, right? So, so often we suppress it, we, we judge it, we, we bottle it down. And then, of course, it just explodes and spills all over everyone, so to actually feel it as an energy in your body and thank it. I mean, literally, it sounds crazy, but thank you. Thank you, Inga, for trying to protect me, right? And just let the feelings of the energy flow in your body and, you know, not suppress them, not harm them, not judge them, not do anything other than feel them at first. And then see if you can harness it for good. So there's there's three components of self-compassion, which I've identified, which are um, mindfulness, sense of common humanity and kindness. And when you're angry, when you're protecting yourself, these components manifest as brave, empowered clarity, right? So the anger is as a, when it's in the service of kindness. In other words, when it's in the service of protection, it makes you very brave. It allows you to speak up, to stand up for yourself. The uh, common humanity actually helps you feel empowered when you realize it's not like just you all separate. It's only you that when you realize like, Hey, when I stand up for myself, I'm standing up for all women or maybe all, all people who are being treated unfairly or this comes from my, it, it's a basic human right to be treated a certain way, right? It's, I'm not alone. It's part of being human. And then the mindfulness can give you real clarity. If we aren't mindful, we might just not notice it. I mean, think for all the years, women just said, Oh, that's just the way men are. 
because the they're just handsy. Mo- the movie is told us, oh, they're just handsy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really only our ability to really look at it and say, wait a second, this is causing harm. This isn't okay. And a lot of that came from mindfulness, the, the, the willingness to turn toward rather than turn away from what was actually happening um, that allows us to take a stand. So this is, you know, this is all self-compassion. People think self-compassion is just, you know, gentle and soft and accepting. Sometimes it's just the opposite. It's really just about alleviating suffering. And that can look a million different ways. You know, I spoke with a lawyer um, who had been so trapped by his own definition of self. He was so trapped by this image of hardworking, never complaining, that he he got stuck, really, yeah. you know, yeah. and his sort of judger in chief, which was himself, was so stuck in a mode. How do we even begin to separate from that and give ourselves a little break? You know, the piece of ourselves that is always expected to be the best, to be special, yes. you know, it has no time. How dare you be less than perfect, it might say to us. Right, right. <laughs> well, so I like to we I start. Like- uh, there's, there's the saying in the self-compassion world, which is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. Right? <laughs> so you, you actually you actually change your goal instead of being perfect or instead of always getting it right. Your goal is simply to be warm, compassionate, and supportive, regardless of what happens, whether you get it wrong or right. And ironically, people think that this is going to mean you're going to get it wrong more often. It's actually the opposite. Because what happens is when you make a mistake and you beat yourself up, you're going to be anxious, you're going to become afraid of failure, it's going to be harder to improve. But if you're warm and supportive and you say, okay, everyone fails, what can I learn from this situation? Then you're actually more able to grow and change and be motivated to, to do better next time. So really just taking the focus off of the outcome, getting it right, and really focusing more on, again, what can I learn? How can I support myself? How can I do the best I can? Um, and, you know, again, just because my behavior maybe isn't as good as I would like it to be, that doesn't mean that I'm not okay. You know, maybe my behavior needs a little work, but I'm okay as I am. I'm okay exactly where I am. I'm a, I'm a process. What if the rumination kicks in, which is which is kind of a habit for so many of us? Yeah, yeah. So, so rumination is when, when you get stuck in that loop over and over again. And really, the first thing is just to recognize this is the safety response. This is actually the freeze response. We feel stuck. We don't know what to do. And part of that is because we're scared. You know, we're anxious. Um, we're afraid if we do something different, we'll, it'll be harmed. Or, you know, we're kind of like stuck because we don't know what to do. We feel overwhelmed. The very first thing to do is give compassion to that. It's hard. So, so there's, again, there's three components to compassion, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. So you can, first of all, just be aware. Wow. That really, it's really difficult to feel stuck. It's hard to feel this. You know, it's, this is painful. Uh, you feel overwhelmed or it's so difficult. Common humanity. It's not just me who does this. This is part of being human. This is part of the way the brain evolved. You know, I'm certainly not the only one. Oftentimes we, we kind of fall into the trap of thinking it's just us. You know, as if everyone else is perfect and it's just me who's ruminating or anxious or whatever my issue is. So just remembering this is part of the human experience. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling this way. This just happens. And then kindness. You might think, what would I say to a friend who said, hey, you know, um, Mara, I, I just feel so stuck right now. You probably wouldn't say, you stupid idiot. I mean, hopefully you <laughs> wouldn't say that, right? But we say that to ourselves thinking somehow that's going to help. 
Let's talk about naming and labeling for a second, actually, because I think a lot of us, we use our labels both as something that feels very familiar and, and we may accept it, but sometimes we use that, we use the crazy word, you know, we, we sort of diminish ourselves internally and become such a strong critic. I'm curious if, if how you feel about how the labels we use both for ourselves and the other people use for us and how you could begin to start talking to yourself differently. So some labels I think are helpful and some aren't, right? So my, mm. so my son has an anxiety disorder. He also has um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And getting him diagnosed actually really helped. <laughs> helped us get, get him on the right medication, get him the right type of therapy, right? So um, recognizing that, you know, most of us have some sort of <laughs> disorder, right? That, again, that's the way most brains are, are created. So recognizing that, Maybe, yeah, some, you know, some brains are designed to be more anxious than others. It's not your fault. You didn't choose to have that brain or maybe the particular upbringing that led you to be, have more anxiety than others. Um, and so you don't need to blame yourself. You know, at the same time, you want to be able to help yourself be as happy and, you know, productive as possible given the way your particular brain works. So, um, again, you can acknowledge what's happening, but just because your brain has a tendency to produce too much cortisol, maybe, you know, what, what's too much? You know, if you're, <laughs> exactly. if you're running from a lion, maybe it wouldn't be too much, right? So, yeah. So really working with what biology has given us and what culture has given us and trying to make the best of it. Well, how do we do that? Do we do that with blame? Like, I shouldn't be this way. There's something wrong with me for being this way. Or just saying, okay, how can I help support myself, be as happy and productive as I can be? You know, your worth is as a person is not defined by your particular brain patterns. Right? I'm like I say, my my issue, I don't have a lot of anxiety, but reactive anger is part of my part of my brain makeup, you know, and, and think about that. I'm supposed to be like this mindfulness and self-compassion teacher who has a problem with reactive anger. I mean, how does that sit with you? You know, what does that mean? Reactive anger? Well, so if so, if I get triggered, like if someone, mm -hmm. and for me, it's often like, oh, I won't get it, but there's like this whole war about my scale and what it means and how it should be used. And it makes me angry. And so sometimes <laughs> I like shoot off an email that maybe wasn't the most professional email, you know, it's just kind of, <laughs> that's just kind of the way I roll. Um, and so, yeah, you, not that I don't work on it, but what how really helps me is this idea of being a compassionate mess. You know, that it's not so much about getting it right. Of course, you want to do the best you can. You don't want to harm others. All those things. Yes, yes, yes. And what's more important than getting it right is opening your heart. Because really, where does our happiness come from? Where does our sense of deep satisfaction and meaning come from? It actually doesn't come from getting it right because that's temporary. You might get it right for a while, but then you'll get it wrong. Life happens. And even if you get it right, a lot of the time, you're eventually going to get sick and old and die. I'm sorry to break the news, but that's reality, right? Everything changes. But the quality of our heart being open, feeling love, feeling connected, feeling, you know, um, this, this, sense of oneness, the sense of um, beauty, which comes from having an open heart, that's really where our happiness and satisfaction lies. So if we shift our focus away from just getting it right to really primarily opening our heart, as we try to get it right as best we can, it makes a huge difference, huge difference. I can tell you personally, that's been my experience. I hope you take away a little bit of self-compassion practice for yourselves today 
And to close, one last word from lawyer Mark Goldstein. I try to turn whatever it is that, you know, OCD or depression into something that makes me unique, something that makes me different. I have something different to offer to the world. That That is how I try to turn it to the extent feasible into a positive. And that's, for instance, why I started talking, you know, almost three years ago and writing about these issues was because I am different, you know, um, although as I've seen, I, I also there have a lot of a lot in common with many, many other people. But instead of being mad at myself for being this way, um, I've tried to turn it into something to say a lot of us are in these, this position. So you need to cut yourself some slack um, because, you know, would you be mad at yourself if you were epileptic and had a seizure? I, I would hope not. You shouldn't be mad at yourself if you are depressed and you know think your brain is, isn't working as you would like. It's understandable why you would feel that way. Um, and I've certainly felt that way on many occasions. But you know, treating yourself with compassion is, is just so important. And and that's why, you know, I've tried to flip the script and you know, I don't always succeed, but try to put a positive spin and try to help myself and help others, you know, through through taking what can sometimes be a personal frustration, and if I can, turn it into a positive. That's it for today's show. Throughout the season, I want to hear from you. On an upcoming episode, we're going to look at what it's like to negotiate when you have anxiety. I'd love to hear your stories of negotiations or give me your questions about mental health and negotiation with a voice memo or a video and send it to anxiousachievermail at gmail.com. That's anxiousachievermail, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to feature stories on the show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends, follow us, and leave a review. You can also tweet me at AM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow, message, and subscribe to my LinkedIn newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. If you message me on LinkedIn, I'll always get back to you. Thanks for listening.